So tonight we will be in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 1, and we will, uh, as I joked this morning, we're going to make it real far tonight, we're going to make it a whole whopping two verses uh, in, uh, in here, so, but it's actually a good thing to go take this section a little bit slowly, slowly because this is essentially establishing the central problem that Paul is addressing here, and uh, everything he's going to be saying from here on out is essentially based on him addressing this very serious issue that is going on in the Galatian churches that he lines out in verses 6 through 10. So I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So there's a very natural tendency that we have, and it doesn't matter um, it doesn't matter uh, what generation it is. Um, at, at some point, we tend to look back on the past and idealize it. We have a natural tendency to, to we call it nostalgia. And, you know, uh, and, and people do this with Christianity. They do it with the church. They go, I mean, I've heard many times, oh, if we could only go back to Acts chapter 2, if we could only go back to those days. If we'd only go back to the days of persecution and hardship when the faith was pure, you know, it, it now, now we know people are, are expressing, um, they're expressing really their longing for a, a pure and sincere following of the Lord uh, and, and that they actually don't really want to go back 1,800 years, right? They're not saying that. What they want, they're longing for a more pure and devoted church. And, and Christians who would be live seriously as Christians. And, I, and, I, and, 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 and that, that's, that aspect of it, we can say, we can affirm and say amen to that. But consider the church in its earliest years, indeed for the first roughly six centuries, was marked by serious, hard struggles against heresy that racked the church, divided the church, I mean, there was even there's even historical records of a of, of church courts where uh, where a guy was actually just beaten up and died from his injuries. Like that, that that's a heck of a Presbytery meeting, you know what I mean? Like that's <laughs> that's never happened. In, in, as contentious as we've gotten as Presbyterians, we've ne I've never seen somebody get beaten up on the floor. <laughs> so. Um, but consider that these, um, these heretics of the early years were not spouting outward denials of Jesus. They were claiming to speak for Jesus, to, to correct the record about Jesus. And one of these groups was called the Gnostics. It rose up around the second century, and, and this group had many different uh, strands uh, but they claimed to um, generally to not only affirm the faith of Christians, but guess what? God had bestowed upon them secret knowledge because they're so spiritual and so holy that they, God gave them access to secret knowledge that you don't have access to. And if you'll follow them and do what they say, they'll give you the secret knowledge. You're like, I've seen that infomercial. I've seen it, you know. Uh, and there are individuals and groups aplenty today 
who will be glad to have you follow them, and usually for a nominal sum, they will provide you with everything your heart desires. And what they invariably do is they will take the gospel, and without rejecting it outright, they will add to it. They will subtract from it. They will mix other things into it. But all of it ends up adding something, some kind of form of law into the mix, something that you must do in addition to the gospel in order to make God happy with you and to accept you. And so, uh, and this is what was happening in the Galatian churches. And so I'm going to bring up this, um, this slide here. So, so these are the cities, and these are in that blue central area is Galatia. And so the, these are the cities, um, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, these are the cities that, that where Paul had gone and established churches. And after he left, in the, and that's in the kind of southern Galatia area, um, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, uh, professing, Jews professing to be Christians came into the churches and started saying, okay, but if you, Jesus, you've got to have Jesus, but if you really want to be accepted by God, you could have Jesus and you have to do the law. You got to be, and that starts with circumcision. And so they were coming in and doing that. And so, um, but they were teaching the Galatian churches what they thought was the true gospel. And word got back to Paul. And here we have a strongly worded letter, a strongly confrontational moment that, that uh, from the apostle uh, to the, these churches. And and Paul begins by stating a sorrowful astonishment at what has happened, uh, and, and that's really what our focus is uh, tonight, is on the sorrowful astonishment that begins with uh, what you have when the church deserts God, when the church deserts God in verse 6. And, and, and we have Paul brings a very strong charge to the church. Paul says he is astonished and in a bad way, all right? It's kind of like sometimes I've walked into the playroom of my house, and it's astonishing <laughs> what has gone on in there, right? You're like, but not in the good way. Uh, but, how, but what has shocked him is how quickly the situation changed in the Galatian churches. He was just there. And this should give every young church pause to ensure that above all else, with all the energy and excitement that they, they make uh, a point to guard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was just talking to someone who's a, uh, a member in leadership at a, at a new church plant, um, not in our denomination, but it was kind of, it's a split and uh, it's a it's a split it's a split but they're establishing a new church and and they're talking about all these things and he was talking about people wanting to get this going and that going and stuff's going and I kind of stopped him and I said okay I said but here's the thing I was like you need to make sure that you get your officers and your leadership straight everybody's going to want to go running off doing Sunday school and youth activities and do all the stuff that y'all were doing before but you're not that church anymore you are a church plant now. <laughs> and so that means that you need to invest in the things that people can't really see all the time. And, and, so, uh, and so, but that's, uh, and so that is, and so uh, because now they're, they went from an established church to being a young church. 
but people are trying to act like they're an established church. <laughs> and it's like, no, you need to go back to being a young church, and so you need to guard the gospel, you need to invest in your leadership, and start building that internal structure, and then slowly start adding those, those programs in through volunteers. You know, it just, you know, to go, and he was like, huh, you know, <laughs> it was like, it's like, yeah, because that's, that's, that's the way you're going to do it, otherwise you're just going to burn out, and then things, and you're going to collapse from the inside, because there's no core structure there. And so, uh, but now older churches, it's not that younger churches need to be careful because they can be led astray very easily. Uh, uh, older churches have to be vigilant as well, but for different reasons. Remember, the churches in Galatia are young church plants. They've just started up. So, uh, and, and, they, and there's not a history of like church planting resources and all those things at the time. So, so Paul says, you know, we, we even call like, you know, we call like the church plant in Monroe that we support, you know, we call that a scratch plant. They're all scratch plants, right? <laughs> like they're all like scratch, they're all just kind of parachute plants effectively. So, uh, which is very difficult. And so uh, Paul says that the churches have gone so far as to desert God, to abandon God. I mean, if somebody came up and said that to you, that you'd be offended, right? You'd be like, well, that's a serious charge, buddy. You better have something to back that up. Like, because if it's true, I really care about it. But that's kind of insulting to me. <laughs> so, so, uh, but that's a serious charge. And, and so, but we need to be clear here what Paul's logic is. His argument in the letter is to abandon the gospel is to abandon God. You cannot have God without the gospel. And so it's absolutely critical for every church, no matter what age it is, for every Christian to be crystal clear on what the gospel is and to zealously guard it. But the Galatians have turned to a different gospel. And again, see how Paul equates these things. To turn from the gospel is to abandon God, is to turn from God. Now we have to be careful at this point because not every problem is a gospel issue. And we must resist the temptation to take secondary and tertiary matters, which Christians are free to disagree on, and, and, uh, but still maintain fellowship with one another. So take the issue of baptism, for, for example. Okay? You know, it's, you know, a, a, our, you know a, a zealous you know, Baptist brother or sister and a zealous Calvinist uh, you know, Presbyterian are going to disagree about who gets to be baptized when it comes to the babies. Right? We're going to have this disagreement about how baptism functions. You know, and so now someone might say, now someone might say, oh, well, is not baptism a sign of the covenant? Is not baptism uh, a representative of our death and resurrection, uh, of the death and resurrection of Christ and of our union with him and thus signify the promises of the gospel for the believer? And we say, absolutely true. Yes, absolutely. But our debate over baptism is not about the meaning of baptism necessarily. It's about the application and function of baptism. And, and, so our, and so our Baptist brothers and sisters regard baptism as, as a religious ordinance that is to be apl applied at the time of the of, of individual's profession of faith. And, the, and, and as Presbyterians... Uh, we believe that it's, it's actually a right that is to be applied to believers and their children after the pattern of circumcision from the Old Covenant. Now, one of those views is right, and one of those views is wrong. That's absolutely true. Logic demands that, right? 
Um, uh, but um, but we have to remember the debate here is is over the administration of the sign, not the meaning of the sign, and certainly it's not a debate over the meaning of the gospel. And so my point is simply that while these debates matter, they're real, they're important, but these are not deviations from the gospel, and we don't need to treat them as such. And so Baptists and Presbyterians can indeed fellowship together, worship together, serve Christ together as brothers and sisters in the Lord. As, as proof of this point, we should note carefully that all the letters of Paul, that Paul wrote and all the problems that he addressed in all those letters, 13 letters he wrote. He wrote to Rome. He wrote to Philippi. He wrote twice to, Thess- to, to uh, Thessalonica. He wrote uh, twice to Corinth. Right? There was all kinds of mess going on over there. He wrote to, he wrote to Colossae. He wrote to Ephesus. He wrote to all these different places. Right? Only in this letter does he say this. Only in this one letter. And it'd be interesting to go and survey all the problems that he dealt with in all those letters that don't warrant him going after him like he does here. And that might temper some, uh, some, some, uh, sometimes when we get really get our hackles up about an issue and we're tempted to go in and start kind of, you know, knocking heads uh, or, and we, because we say it's a gospel issue. Not every debate, not every deviation, and not every error in a church or a Christian's faith is heresy. And we don't need to treat it as such. Because if everything is a gospel issue, then nothing is. Um, there's also a small comfort here. That if the disciples, as we looked at, you know, we were looking at Luke uh, on Sunday mornings. If the disciples did not understand the things when taught personally by the resurrected Lord Jesus. And if the early churches were so messed up, even though they were taught taught by the living apostles in their midst, maybe we shouldn't feel so bad when we get something wrong. Right? We can give ourselves a little more grace. But, But Paul is astonished and he's disturbed. But he also, in this, in this opening uh, verse, in verse 6, uh, and is, he gives our true calling. Our true calling. Paul, in verse 6, declares that, that what we have been truly been called to, the grace of Christ. This is the defining trait of the church. That we are called to faith in the grace of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean there's no requirement for, for obedience. It doesn't mean that we don't need to have daily repentance of sin. Doesn't mean that we have no obligations to, to live for God. That's not what that means. But it does mean that our fundamental relationship with God is one of, as Paul says in Philippians, a righteousness that comes by faith through grace and not a righteousness that comes by obedient to the law of God or the law of men. Certainly not the law of men. So we must remember this as the clarion call, the trumpet blast of the church in the world, that God has called his people in the grace of Christ. One guy, and I, I love this guy's name. I've, I've read him a little bit before. and I, His name is Wolfgang Musculus. He comes from the Reformation era. I was like, there you go. That, there's a manly name, Wolfgang Musculus. But he writes this. He writes, where there is variation, change, diminution, meaning to make smaller, mixture or subtraction, 
it ceases to be the true gospel and becomes false and corrupted. This is where we must be stalwart, where we must be adamant, unbending, and unyielding. Consider how when Paul was in prison and writing to the Philippians, he rejoiced as his enemies were trying to make trouble for him by preaching the gospel. He doesn't write what he writes to the Galatians, to them in, in Philippi. and says, hey, you tell them something from old Paul, right? What actually he would say, he says, I do have a message for him. Tell them, keep it up. Keep going. Why? Because they were preaching the actual gospel. That's the only key difference. Their motives were rotten, but they preached the right gospel. And Paul says, keep it going then. But Paul is clear that while motives are not insignificant or meaningless, if we are preaching a gospel that is not not chiefly, not defined according to the grace of Jesus Christ, then we are not preaching the gospel. We are preaching a distortion of the gospel and doing damage to the church. And so this leads us to verse 7, which is, which is what we can call a, a call to a discerning vigilance. And, and this, this reminds me of our time in the book of Jude recently, because Jude also called the church to vigilance as well. There's a watchfulness that stands, uh, you know, and, and you think back, you're like, Jesus told us to be watchful as well, didn't he? And there's this continual call throughout the New Testament for a, to have a watchful church. And so, and so as a watchful church, we need to have a clear resolution. We must be adamant that there is no other gospel. Paul couldn't even say, you know, uh, you know you're, you've ex- you're turning to a different gospel without going back and going, ooh, that doesn't, that doesn't sit right, right? He can't, I can't even say those words. He says, not that there is another one, right? He says, let me be clear. There is no other gospel. It's still, even just saying that phrase, different gospel, bothered Paul. Now, gospel, as we know, simply is a word that means good news, it was a word that was very general in general use at the time. It was the uh, uh, famously, you've probably heard in sermons where they talk about, you know, in the, back in the day after the battle, somebody would coming in proclaiming the gospel, right? We won, good news, victory, right? So, and that's where it came from. That's, and the Christians adopted it. And, but the good news, very early on, we see here the gospel took a very specific shape, a very specific definition a very specific meaning such that any, that, that any deviation from it, turning from it, as the Galatians had done, even in a kind of Jewish biblical kind of way by adding the law onto it, Paul says was to abandon the gospel, to desert God himself. And so Paul clarifies, there is no other gospel There's only one gospel that can save, but there are a whole lot of troublemakers who are in the church who will do two things. First, he says, they trouble you. The word there means, this is uh, two different translations you can find in English Bibles, uh, to unsettle the mind, to to throw you into confusion. the, The word literally means to shake or agitate. And second, he says, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. John Stott, the British pastor and commentator, wrote that the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside 
the church, who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. And why is this true? Well, because if you talk about those who persecute the church and those who are inside making trouble for the church, one involves deception, the other one doesn't. Right? Persecution, you know, may, it makes living for Christ hard, but not unclear or confusing. Neither does ridicule or opposition. What does that do? It drives us to Christ. It drives us to the church, drives us to other believers, to, to talk about our faith and to encourage and strengthen one another. But distorting the gospel can bring divisions and strife within the church. It's deceptive because it promises the truth and promises God's blessing, but ends in sorrow. And so then Paul brings to us a real challenge. Because here's the hard part about dealing with this and this other gospel. And here's the hard part is that the people who are proclaiming it, the people who are putting it forward, they deny that they're changing the gospel. They say, no, 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 I'm giving it right. And they might, they're going to have some scriptures to back them up, and they're going to turn you to other parts of the Bible. They might get you spinning around. Okay. Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, he wrote, Indeed, these false teachers are prouder of the name of Christ than anyone else and claim to be the sincerest preachers of the gospel. But because they confuse the law with the gospel, they subvert it. Either Christ must abide and the law perish, or the law must abide and Christ perish. They cannot both rule a person's conscience. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no use for the commands of God. Of course not. The commands of God are guidance to the Christian. They are, you know, we call the, the, uh, the Ten Commandments the ten-sided path of blessing. Right? It's uh, walking in, in life with God and with his people and with others. But we, do not, we are not justified by our obedience to the law. We are, not, we are not made Christians by our obedience to the law. We, are not, we don't stay Christians by our obedience to the law. Praise be to God for that. C.S. Lewis warned many years ago in his book on education called The Abolition of Man that the nation was producing a generation of people uh, with hard hearts and soft heads. Those who were hardened in their self-assurance, in their self-trust, but unaware how easily they were swayed by propaganda. Such people are in a very precarious position. So what are we to do? Well, the answer for the church cannot be cynicism and suspicion of everyone in the church. That's not going to work. How do you have Christian fellowship in the, if, that, if that is how we do it? As a church, we must be vigilant to hold to the good news of Jesus Christ as the only thing that can turn the heart of stone to flesh and illumine the darkened mind. We know the gospel. We understand the gospel. We meditate upon the gospel. We share the gospel. We are intimately familiar with it. When someone comes along to try to change it, we see it. We see them, what they're trying to do, or one of our Christian siblings will see and help us and correct us. But many churches have grown weary. What's the point, they ask? Why should we bother? No one really cares about this stuff anymore anyway. 
thought this quote from uh, one scholar, uh, he, it was very uh, pertinent. He says, quote, A church that cannot distinguish heresy from truth, or even worse, that no longer thinks it's worth doing, is a church that has lost its right to bear witness to the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ, who has declared himself to be the way and the life, but also the truth and the only truth that leads to the Father. And that's the heart of the matter. Paul is so animated about this. He's angry. Why is he angry about this? Well, he's angry about this for two very simple reasons. The glory of Christ is at stake. And secondly, the souls of men and women are at stake. That's why he's so agitated. That's why he's so upset. To change the nature of the gospel is to intimate that Christ's work is somehow ineffective or inefficient or insufficient. Something more from someone else is needed to complete the work of Christ. Further, to change the gospel is to rob others of the salvation of their souls. But we don't have to even change the gospel. We can simply just ignore it. We can forget it or withhold it from others. Sometimes pastors forget to give the gospel when they preach. I was talking to a friend of mine this week who, had re- who attended a church service several months back and they ended up going to a different church. They just moved to another area. And, and, in, that, and in this service, a pastor began a sermon on Lamentations 1 in this way. He said effectively, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, hey, there's no, there's no gospel in this passage, so, so I'm not just going to cram something in there that's not there. So, so, so we're, so just don't be surprised, you know, and and, and then he, and then he spent the next 30 to 45 minutes lighting into the culture war. And I know that kind of sermon. Me and my pastor friends talk about those kinds of sermons. They're the kind of sermons that you will get you lots of pats on the back and attaboys from conservative crowds speaking the hard truth about everyone out there that we don't like and doesn't like us. It is emotionally satisfying to dump on your enemies, okay? It just is. And look, there are times to call out sin for what it is and where it is, and I am happy to do so, and I expect to do so. That's not what bothers me. What bothers me is if a pastor comes out, and it's not not the first time I've heard a pastor do that, come out and outright say, no gospel today. I'm like, really? No gospel. No Christ, no salvation today. That's, that's, what, that's what you're telling me. And the more I thought about it, the more, like, I laugh a lot. Um, lots of debates. I'm happy to engage with people. I don't get really flustered, upset. This makes me angry. Lamentations 1 is a passage where the people of God are coming to terms with the righteous judgment that God has just brought upon them for generations of wickedness and covenant unfaithfulness. They're standing in the ruins of Jerusalem, the ruined and ravaged symbol of the bride of God. You can't preach the gospel there? 
Does God not speak to us in the pain of temporal judgments? Where he uses the pain in our lives and the consequences of sin to call us to repentance and faith. Isn't that the point of the, of the prodigal son? Isn't that part of it? But the son who's in the muck and the mire and finally realizes my father's generous and good and maybe I can go back and get in his good graces. And he's lavished with mercy and goodness when he returns home. Did God not pour out the wrath that we deserve for our sin on the cross of his beloved son? Does, Je does Jesus not receive our wrathful ruin and give us his righteous glory? I'm just like, am I going to stand here as an ordained minister of the gospel and declare to you that I'm going to refrain displaying the wonders of God's mercy in the midst of ruin? For what? So I can rail about the wickedness of pagans that we already know about? Now I get that he may be pushing back against some of the evangelical preaching excesses in recent years. There's pastors who lazily just tack on a gospel call at the end of a sermon. It has nothing to do with the text they've been preaching. They just kind of just, and believe in Jesus right at the end, right? Or also the oversaturation of gospel-centered books and Christian publishing. It's like, we're like gospel-centered, you know, cookie cutting. And you're like, okay, we've, we're going, all right, let's just we'll give it a rest for a while. But who might be sitting before that pastor, silently sitting in the ruin of their own lives, feeling the consequences of their own sin, to hear the pastor say, no grace today. Just judgment. I've sat in those sermons. I probably preached one or two, so... I remember when I was interning, I preached one, and she called me out on it. So when I got home, so she was like, "I didn't hear any grace," and I was like, "There wasn't." <laughs> I was like, "Oh wow," you know. I've had a pastor pound me for forty-five minutes and then tell me to suck it up and act more like a man. And I'm not saying we got to preach happy sermons about just grace and love and puppies and how God loves you as you are, and you'll need to change. What I'm saying is that as dark as the sin that we must confront in the text and in our lives at any given moment, God's grace always shines brighter. I'm saying that when Jesus says the Old Testament is all about him, it is. And to engage in the work of preaching and not present the good news of Jesus from the text of the Bible is to utterly fail to be a preacher in that moment. Because my job is not to give theological lectures or feel-good pep talks. My job is not to do conservative Tucker Carlson impressions with a Christian spin. My job is embossed on a plate right here on this pulpit that you can't see, but you know what it says. It says, sir, we would see Jesus. I don't care what text you're in. We came here to see Jesus. I don't care how impressive, you know, impressed you are with yourself. We came to see Jesus. Not, sir, we would be entertained with jokes and stories. Not, sir, we would have you pretend to be righteous and holy in front of us. Not, sir, we would, be, we would see the unrighteousness of our enemies. Not, sir, we would have ourselves flattered. Sir, we would see Jesus because we need him. 
And the Galatians need Jesus. And we need Jesus. There is a warning and encouragement in this text tonight. The warning is that as the church, we will be guilty of deserting God, not by failing to engage properly in the culture war, but by distorting the gospel of Christ. But there's also an encouragement here. We are a people always called to the grace of Christ. Even as far as the Galatians have fallen, where they're being rebuked by the apostle, why is he rebuking them? So they'll turn back. And so, let us rejoice in that. Let us worship because of the grace of Christ. Let us guard the grace of Christ carefully because there are those who would rob us of that joy and supplant it with law and commands and orders. And let we who have the grace of Christ then hold out that good news of eternal life to a lost and dying generation because then we will not be fading lights upon the earth. But as Paul says, we, even, if the, even, if the, even if the country that we live in, the world that we live in is, is as dark as midnight, as Christians, we will shine like stars in the sky. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a wonderful Savior. Lord, we thank you that in your mercy, you show us grace, even when we have gone the wrong way, even when as a pastor I fail to preach Christ. There is mercy, even for the preacher who fails. There is mercy, grace. And so, Father, we pray that you would continually call your church back to your truth, to your grace, to your gospel. We pray, Lord, that we would remember it, that we would guard it zealously, that no one would rob us or our brothers and sisters of that joy. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Christ, that we are a people called by grace through faith and not of works. And we pray, Lord, that that, that reality would just embed itself deep into our souls and produce an overflow of worship and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.